My name is Joel Sedecase. I'm a Christian apologist, husband, and the father of four kiddos. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach high school Bible at Chicago Hope Academy. That decision would set me on a journey that would bring me first to seminary to study apologetics and earn my master's in philosophy of religion, then into local church ministry, where I became a youth pastor and eventually an interim lead pastor, and then to joining Crew and launching the Think Institute in 2019. Now, I'm on a mission to help fathers lead their families in defending the Christian message. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to go find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, if you have an interest in the intersection of fatherhood and apologetics, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, I want to let you know about our online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook. There, you can join hundreds of other Christ followers also on the same journey. We trade apologetic stories and strategies, discuss philosophical and theological questions. It's like a huge late-night bull session in your favorite cigar lounge. And it's actually led to some real-life hangouts as well. So check it out, the Think Squad Facebook group. All right, so the question is, if God is omnipotent, could he make a rock that is so heavy he couldn't lift it? Uh, no, he could not. And the reason for that, and, I, and a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of people think that that's, that's like a defeater for God's existence or God's omnipotence or something like that. But that's, um, think about what's being required there. So God, by definition, is omnipotent. He's maximally great. His potency is, uh, his, you know, his power, his puissance is, by definition, maximally great. Um, so the, the question is asking, can someone whose power is limitless, his, his ability to do all that his will desires is unbound by any external factors. Can he um, do something? Can he create a, a, uh, a limiter, you know, a rock in this case, that would limit him? Uh, and the answer is no. Um, he can't do that. Because, um, not because, not because it's a logical contradiction for God to be omnipotent or something like that, but because the idea of an all-powerful or omnipotent God being able uh, or, or not being able to do something is self-referentially incoherent. It's actually an illogical concept. So the, the contradiction lies not in God's power or his omnipotence, but actually in the scenario itself. Um, and one of the reasons why we would expect this answer. It's actually exactly what you would expect if, if God is all-powerful, and he is, by the way. But um, the reason why we would expect this is because God is not just all-powerful. God is also perfectly logical. So he's perfectly powerful and perfectly, perfectly logical. This is one of the things that I talk about on my podcast, the Think Podcast, quite a bit, is that logic is only a meaningful concept and something that we ought to presuppose because God himself is the ground of all logic. So to involve God in a logical contradiction is, you know, that's something that the Eastern religions try to do. Um, you know, Hinduism tries to do that or um, Zen Buddhism with its Zen cones and things like that, um, which are statements that you meditate on that are supposed to be nonsensical or, or contradictory. But, um, the biblical worldview, the biblical Christian worldview is at bottom a logical worldview. And that's because it's rooted in God's revelation, God's self-revealing of himself. So God being perfectly logical um, cannot bring about, because of his nature, he cannot bring about a logically incoherent 
situation. Um, now, that doesn't mean that he's not omnipotent, because remember what I said earlier, there's nothing external to God that could limit him. But that's not to say that God is unbound with respect to his own nature. There's other things that God can't do as well. God can't sin. God can't lie. Um, and God can't do, God can't create logically incoherent um, scenarios. So can God make a married bachelor? Well, no, not in the same sense at the same time, because by definition, a bachelor is not married. Can God make a square circle? No. Again, that's a logical contradiction. Um, can God fail to keep one of his promises? No, he can't do that either. That would make God a liar. And um, and so all of these things are, are rooted in Scripture, rooted in the Bible. If you're going to take one doctrine of God, you've got to take them all. Which, by the way, that same Bible also says that the gospel is true, that we're sinners, we deserve death, and God's son, Jesus, second person in the Trinity, became a man, took on that death for our sins, was buried and was raised again on the third day, and everyone who believes and trusts in him will be saved. So God's perfectly logical. He perfectly keeps his promises. And that is a rather long-winded way of saying, no, God cannot create a rock that he can't lift. How can sola scriptura be true if scripture never lists the books of the canon within itself to begin with? All right, good question. Um, for this, I'm going to crack open my copy of Scripture Alone. And um, Scripture Alone is a book written by James R. White. came out, I don't know, 20 years ago, something like that, 15 years ago. And I've actually been working my way through it because I've been getting a lot of questions lately about scripture, its canonization, its authority, its sufficiency. So I figured I better bone up on that. Um, and I'm not, an, I'm not a Bible scholar. You know, my master's is in philosophy of religion. Um, so when, you know, when it comes to textual criticism and um, the history of canonization and things like that, I rely on guys like James White, other thinkers like that. So how can Sola Scriptura, what, what was it again, Ellipsis? It's how can it be true or how can it be biblical? He says, how can it be true if, yeah, that's okay. what he says. All right, got it. Okay, so for Sola Scriptura to be true, what what does Sola Scriptura um, posit? What, what does the doctrine say? So Sola Scriptura, and I actually wrote a little something on this um, in a recent Think Update email that I send out. And I'm going to see if I can pull that up as well. But, uh, but Sola Scriptura is the doctrine that Scripture is the sole rule of faith and practice for the church. So, well, okay, let's see if I can pull this up exactly. All right. Here we go. Scripture alone is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. So a rule of faith is that which, according to James White, that which governs and guides what we believe and why. In other words, sola scriptura affirms, in White's words, the freedom of scripture to rule as God's word for the church, disentangled from papal and ecclesiastical magisterium and tradition. So a corollary to this is the idea that, again, James White's words, all a person must believe to be a follower of Christ is found in Scripture and in no other source. So Scripture has these three attributes that no other book and no other source of authority, including, and I don't know if the questioner is a Roman Catholic or belongs to another religious tradition, but Scripture has three attributes that no other source of religious authority can even touch. Sufficiency, certainty, infallibility. Scripture testifies this about itself. Jesus said that Scripture cannot be broken. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. 
So scripture's testimony about itself, about itself in its entirety, is that it is all we need for every good work. If if you're a man of God, all you need, and by the way, faith in Jesus Christ is, um, you know, it's, it's not a salvific work, but trusting in Jesus every day, orienting your life around Jesus, that is one of those good works that, um, that Scripture equips us for. So, once we see that Scripture itself testifies to its own sufficiency, that right there knocks every other source of authority off any pedestal. Because if we needed an external source to the Bible to authenticate Scripture for us, then Scripture would not be our sufficient source, fully equipping us for every good work. Um, scripture would have, Scripture would be, you know, would get us maybe most of the way there, but let's say we would still need the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church to authenticate Scripture. So faith in Scripture itself would still be a good work that we would need to go outside of Scripture in order to be able to perform. So, Scripture negates all external authorities. Now, that's not a full treatment of it, but this is kind of a quick one. As Ellipsis said, we're going kind of quickly tonight. Um, as for the books that belong in the canon, Scripture is self-attesting and self-authenticating. So, the um, when... When the canon, as the canon has been recognized over the years, the Old Testament canon, which did not include the Apocrypha, by the way, and I've talked about that before, I believe, on these AMAs. The Old Testament canon, the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, if you will, the Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, the, 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 the law, the prophets, and the writings. That was recognized, that was solidified by Jesus' day. And during that 400-year period prior to Jesus, it was well known within Israel, within Second Temple Judaism, that there had been no new revelation from God. So by the time the New Testament comes along, the Old Testament canon is solid, recognized. The New Testament canon, we begin to see it take shape even within the pages of Scripture itself. Peter authenticates the writings of Paul, for example. Uh, he says that some twist the scriptures. Um, he said that some twist Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. Jesus himself also authorized the writings of the Gospels and the Epistles when he said that the Holy Spirit would remind his apostles of everything that he did. That's the Gospels, and that they would guide. He would guide them into all truth. That's the Epistles. So, Scripture itself hints at. The old te- well, it, it the, the Old Testament canon was solidified, recognized, and then it hints at the New Testament canon. Um, the early church did have criteria, and I believe there were four different criteria, and I always forget the. There's like one that I can never remember, but the the in, the criteria had to be to recognize a book as scripture. It had to be apostolic, meaning it had to be written at the time of the apostles, by an apostle or an apostolic associate. So, for example, Luke was not an apostle per se, but he was a companion of Paul. So, got Luke's gospel is, uh, is, is canon. Um, it had to be theologically consistent with other scriptures. So, this is why, you know, um, right off the bat, books like the Gospel of the quote-unquote Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the the Gospel of Jesus' wife, which is a forgery that came out a couple years ago. These are all off the table. They were not apostolic, weren't written during the times of the apostles, not theologically consistent. And they also had to be recognized by all the churches. So that's important as well. And what's going on there is not, this is not the same thing as a magisterium in Rome or some central authority declaring by fiat that these that these books are canon, you know, like Joe Biden saying all the companies have all the companies with um, more than 100 employees now have to mandate vaccinations. You know, it, it, Joe Biden doesn't have the authority to make a mandate like that, and the Pope in Rome does not have the authority to declare which books are scripture. Neither did the Emperor Constantine. You know, God's not real big on these big centralized authorities. Um, I'm not gonna, even though this is the the politics. 
server. I'm not going to get into this whole um, uh, a, a whole tirade on that. But what That's I will totally s- fine, Joel. No worries. <laughs> it's very tempting today, um, but but uh, but the reason why it was important that all the churches recognize a book as scripture is because that testified to the witness of the Holy Spirit. See, as Christian believers, we believe that God has sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts, into our lives, and that he does guide us into all truth. And so if all the churches are recognizing a book as scripture, that's testimony to its authenticity. So God has given us resources. God has given us internal testimony, um, scripturally internal testimony, God has given us self-authentication of Scripture. We do not need an external authority. And if we did need an external authority, Scripture itself would be nullified at that point because Scripture says we don't need an external authority. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. Okay, so I have a question from Aiden. Uh, Aiden, I'll go ahead and unmute you. If you could ask your question in a nice way, because he's recording this, that'd be great. Thank you so much. Um, So... I have three quick questions. Uh, the, fir- the first one, can you like stick the with main one? one if we can, um, if we can keep it limited, because we had a short amount of time. But if we can be, as, yeah, yeah. It, it, I'm, I'm not trying to make it like a rant like the other ones, but like, yeah, just, just like a quick, quick back and forth, you know. Um, so, why does God hate LGBTQ plus folks? Okay, what are you basing that on? Uh, what people like you say. Uh, can you give an example of something that I've said that makes you think that? Oh, I don't know you, but... How do you know that people like me say that, if you don't know me? Do you say that? No. What, what's your opinion on the LGBTQ plus community? Um, are we still talking about God, or are we talking about me? What's your what's your actual question? You 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 you. But how does it relate to your religious worldview? Are you asking for a biblical position on what you termed as LGBTQ folks? Yes. Okay. Um, when you say LGBTQ folks, can you clarify that a little further? What what do you mean by that term? Homosexuals. Okay. So. Uh, the T is not going to be homosexual in that. Uh, are you including transgender in that as well? You, you can you can do that separately. I don't care. Okay. I'm I'm looking for a common thread between lesbians, gays. Lesbians only like are attracted to women. Uh, gays are attracted to men. Bisexual attracted to both. Trans is a man who identifies self-identifies as a woman or a woman who identifies as a man queer that covers quite a bit but then as we all know now there are um new purported genders and sexual sexualities and things like that um coming out every day on tiktok so what i'm looking for is the common thread that you think Um, that's pretty homophobic okay let's not say that people are making up genders please oh well let's not say that People aren't making up genders, please. That's pretty Christophobic. I mean, we're, we're just going to toss are. insults at each other. But I'm not tossing any insults. That's all you. No. Can you please answer my uh, question? Phobia is actually an irrational fear. So, and homophobia is what? What is that? Um, you're scared of homosexuals. Okay, so that's that's what I thought you were saying, and that's an insult because saying homophobic is accusing me of an irrational fear of men who are attracted to their same sex. So do you see how that would be an, that would be an insult? You're, you're just kind of tiptoeing around answering the question here. Though. Not at all. Just trying to define our terms. And I don't like being insulted when I'm trying to answer a question. So if we could try to not insult each other anymore, that would be cool. Can we agree to that? Absolutely. Okay. So would you like to just stick with homosexuals? Yeah, sure. Okay. That's cool. And listen, I understand that when we're talking about this issue, we're we're not just talking about activities, proclivities. We're not talking about headlines. We are talking about actual people. Um, now we can we can deal with it on the abstract level in terms of uh, organizations that push, you know, as you called it, the LGBTQ folks agenda. 
meaning, um, you know, there are political organizations and things like that. I mean, I, I can talk about that at that level if you'd like, but your original question was, why does God hate LGBTQ folks? So by, I know folks has a technical definition sometimes in, uh, in academia nowadays, um, sort of has to do with like these immutable characteristics. But if you're just talking about people, um, then your premise is, is off from the get-go. Because God creates human beings individually. Psalm 139 says that God has, um, he, he knits us together in our mother's wombs. And that every single day of our lives are written in his book before one of them occurs. God is intimately involved in the creation of human beings. According to Genesis 1.27, mankind is made in the image of God. And that's male and female are made in the image of God. So God's intention in creating human beings. And I don't know if you've heard this before. I'm sorry, what's your name again? Uh, Aiden. Aiden. Aiden, I don't know if you've heard this before, but according to the Bible, the reason God created human beings was to reflect attributes of himself and and uh, to know him, to glorify him, to serve him in a in a way that would be uh, maximally enjoyable and fruitful and productive. The very first command that God gave to Adam and Eve, or one of the first commands, was be fruitful and multiply. So our genderedness, our um, interplay and and intercourse, and I don't just mean sexually between... Can we we just shorten this as like, so do you believe that they're going to hell? That who that are we talking about unrepentant practical practicing homosexuals? Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. It's one of the reasons why I do these. Why I do these AMAs is because oh, but don't don't get me wrong. Are you asking if I think that homosexuality in particular is some sort of sin that is like more that makes people more hell bound than another sin? No. Are you just asking if I think that it's sinful? It's sinful. Yes, yes, of course, yes. Pra- pra- uh, sexual intercourse between two men That's is sinful. That's homophobic. Oh, okay, you're insulting me again. I thought we weren't going to no, do I'm that. No, I'm not. Okay. That's not an insult. All right, no, we'll no, wrap no. it up. All right, we'll, no, we'll wrap it. it up. Yeah, we'll wrap it up in a little bit. Next question. Right? No. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll move on. No, let's move on to the next. Joel, I'll let you say. Well, let me. We're cool with one final one, and then yeah, we'll move on to another question. Yeah, real, real quick. Let me just yeah, address yeah, okay. that. Let me just address that. So, we, the reason why I was I was um, trying to dig deep into the purpose for which God created us is because you have to understand something, sir. You're speaking with a Christian, so I believe that God created you and me to know him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. That's literally the purpose we were created. So if you say that I'm being homophobic by telling you what the Bible says, your issue is actually not with me, it's actually with God. And furthermore, what you need to do is you need to establish a standard by which condemning homosexuality as a sin is a sin itself. Because what you're accusing me of is an irrational fear, and the implication there is that I am morally wrong for having that irrational fear. Now, I'm not granting that it's an irrational fear. I'm not afraid of homosexuals. I'm not afraid of people who practice homosexuality. As a matter of fact, I love them. I deeply care about them, and I care about their souls. And I don't separate homosexuality as an unforgivable sin by any means. Homosexuality, like any sin, will master you unless you repent of it, and turn to Jesus Christ. And that is that is true for heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, any non-sexual sin, gluttony, you know, eating too many, being obsessed with Doritos, being, a, being uh, mastered by anything in life. The Bible calls that idolatry. And so if you're asking me if I think that um, an unrepentant sinner who refuses to turn all of his sin and all of his life over to Jesus Christ and to go to Jesus and say, I believe you died on the cross for my sins and I offer you my whole self and my whole life. I receive you as Lord and as Savior. Now, what do I do with my life? That is what God requires. If 
if a person is unwilling to do that, to, to receive God's incredible grace, God's forgiveness of sinners, God's uh, benevolence towards sinners like you and me, then by definition, that person is separating themselves out from God and one day God will separate him from his good presence forever. And I do not put myself on any kind of a pedestal here, Aiden. I want you to hear that. I am probably a lot more sinful than you. So uh, by no means do I have any kind of a rational fear of sinners because if I did, I'd have to have a fear of myself. Matter of fact, I, I hate my sin. I absolutely hate it. And so I, wanna, I want you to hear this, and, and I, don't, I don't know if you can hear this, but I want you to hear great compassion in what I'm telling you. And if it sounds like I'm being blunt, it's, it's out of love. I truly want you to understand that. And I don't know if you can understand that right now, but I care deeply for you and for anyone who would ask me this question. And um, I, I also want you to know that there's an interview that I have on my podcast. If you ever want to look it up sometime, it's called um, How to Evangelize Your Gay Neighbors Without Affirming Their Lifestyle, I think. And I interview Sam Alberry, who's a Christian thinker who talks about these matters. And what you'll hear is two Christian men um, one who has same-sex attraction, one who does not, who are um, compassionately, I hope, I hope that's going to come out, and yet biblically and, and faithfully expositing what the Bible says on these matters. And my goal, Aiden, is not that you walk away from this going, well, I guess there's no hope for me, or this guy thinks there's no hope. Quite the opposite. There is, there is incredible hope and life change in Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to offer you, not condemnation because it's actually not my place to condemn or to judge anyone okay um and my other question is uh, we got um, we gotta move on to the oh, next come question. on come on come on yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll keep time. we'll keep it we'll keep nope. it the short response. sorry next question hold on again sorry next sorry uh become ungovernable ah um yeah yeah no worries become ungovernable i remember you all right. Uh, go ahead and ask your question, dude. Yeah, shut up, Aiden. Shut up. Uh, hello, Joe. Ouch, my feelings. Go ahead. Uh, you know the difference between, like, Renaissance-painted, like, angels, you know, like, blokes with wings flying about and that, and what the Bible describes angels to be, like, you know, humans with wings versus the floating wheels with eyes, yeah? Yeah. Which one, which one do you personally believe is the correct depiction of biblical angels? Well, there's a discrepancy between someone's painting from the 1500s or the Bible. Always go with the Bible. I just wanted to ask the question. Have a good night, mate. All right. Have Bye. a good night. All right. I'll go ahead and unmute you, Aiden. Uh, but... Uh, Next question. It's just so you won't be muted in the room. Um, let's let's see. Um, okay, Nekos way. What? What are? The, what's the morality? What? What's your moral view on suicide? What is my moral view um, on suicide? Uh, sui suicide is a tragedy and a plague, and. Um, a little bit of my heart breaks every time I hear that someone's committed suicide. Um, it's uh, people do it for various reasons. There's often mental health health issues involved. I'm not a mental health expert, um, but it's a tragedy. It's it's a plague, and uh, it kills me to think about how someone can get to that point where they're not only contemplating but actually following through on that. Um, as a Christian. I'm certainly, um, I lean towards the idea that oftentimes Satan or uh, his demons are involved in trying to push somebody over that edge. Satan is a liar and a murderer, the Bible says. Jesus said that about him. Um, so it is it is a tragedy. And um, classic, classically speaking, in terms of the Christian tradition, the way we've understood suicide is that it is sinful as well. And the reason why is because life is a gift from God, from conception to natural death. And we do not have the authority to take a life unjustly. 
a life can be taken lawfully if it's done by the state as capital punishment for a capital crime. But um, just as murder is unlawful and immoral, murdering oneself, which is really what suicide is, is also sinful. Um, now, in saying that, just like with a previous question, um, I, I hope that I'm not saying that without compassion by any means, because in because it's one of those sins where someone is sinning not only against God, but against themselves. They are their own victim. And it's just a horrific thing. And um, now, there might be something implicit in the question, like, is suicide an unforgivable sin? That's That has been the teaching, I don't know if it still is, of the Roman Catholic Church. The reason why is because they've got a different system of salvation where you have to, um, you have to, um, this is crudely speaking, but you have to be placed back into a state of grace once you've sinned. And I don't know if they would consider suicide a mortal sin. I suppose they would. I, I'd be willing to bet that they would. But the idea is you can't go to confession after suicide. So there's no way to be absolved of that sin. Now, as a Bible-believing Christian, Jesus, I believe what Jesus said when he said, that no one can snatch us out of his hand. So if, if a Christian commits suicide, uh, I'm not a guy who's going to go, um, yeah, that, that Christian is now in hell. No, if Jesus has forgiven you your sins, there is nothing you can do to undo that forgiveness. You can't be unborn again. Jesus said you have to be born again. You can't be unborn again even any more than you can be unborn. You know, like, like, like you can have your birth reversed or something like that. So... Um, I don't view it as an automatic ticket to hell. I will say that if you die in your sins unrepentant without turning to Jesus Christ in faith and you commit suicide, yes, L like anyone else who dies in that state, you would be separated from God and ultimately you would end up in hell. It's a, it's a tragic thing, really bad. And I think that there, um, we do, I'm grateful we live in an age now where there is help. There are biblical counselors, Christian counselors out there who can you know, there are, there are good pastors. I've been trained in counseling myself in seminary and I've, I've, um, I've seen the good that God's word and prayer and biblical counseling and, and, um, such things can do for people who are, you know, on the brink. But, um, man, when, when, uh, when someone gets to that point, it's just, it's a horrible thing. And if, and I don't know the person who's asking this question, if, Oh man, I, I it just occurred to me that maybe you yourself are contemplating suicide. I hope that's not the case. I hope this is just a philosophical question. But if that is the case, um, please, you know, reach out to Ellipsis. I'm Ellipsis. I'm putting you on the line here. You can reach out to me. Go to thethink.institute sure. slash contact. I'll connect you with a pastor. I'll connect you with a counselor. But uh, it's never worth it. Never, never, never worth it. Sin is never worth it. It's a lie that we believe that if I do this this um, immoral thing, it's going to somehow lead to good moral outcomes. It never does. It leads to hurt, pain, and um, death, which is the ultimate sting in life, the ultimate sting of Satan. Um, but Jesus has overcome Satan, and there is hope in Jesus Christ. So I guess I'll leave it with that. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, we have a question from, oh yeah. From Aiden. No, uh, from PXERKXDX. When do I get to ask? Oh, Aiden. Dude, yes. we got to have one question per person until we have time to do extras because we only got okay, them for a little got it. Yeah, All right. no worries. Can we, uh, can we there... shorten the, the answers dude, though, dude, a little please. bit? All right. Just DM me when you need to be unmuted. All right. What? Um, no. Next um, question. Let's see if we can find that again. <clears throat> okay, this is a bit of a theological question um, from PXER. Uh, if there's a distinction between regeneration, that which changes us inwardly, slash God who washes and sanctifies, uh, um, Titus 3.5, and faith alone, forensic justice, a legal declaration, how can we say that faith alone saves when both are distinct and necessary for salvation? irrespective of whether they or not uh, they are temporarily in sync. Um, faith, okay, read that last part. How can we say that faith alone, say that again? How can we say that faith alone 
saves? Is that how can we say that faith alone saves when both are distinct and necessary for salvation? So uh, regeneration and justification and, and justification by faith alone. Okay. Um, well, we say that faith alone uh, that we're saved by faith alone because that's what the Bible says. So Ephesians two eight and nine says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith." And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite theologians, I still miss him, he died in 2017. He says, he's famous for saying that regeneration precedes faith. Um, By that, as the question implies, and maybe even openly stated, if I remember correctly, He's not saying that regeneration temporally precedes faith, but rather that it logically precedes faith. In other words, it's impossible for an unregenerate sinner to put his faith, to repent and put his faith in Jesus Christ in his dead uh, you state. Cut out. Sorry, I said it again. Oh, did I, did I cut out? Yeah, just a little bit for a couple seconds there. Go okay. Ahead. Okay. Um, I might have too many tabs open. I'm going to close one here. Uh, so it's impossible for someone who is dead in their sins to to reach out his hand and hold on to Jesus, to receive Jesus. Dead men don't do that sort of thing. Romans 8 says it's impossible for the mind set on the flesh to please God. And one of the things that pleases God is sinners turning and repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ. So it's actually impossible for an unregenerate person to do that. So God is the one who regenerates. God is the one who justifies, who gives that forensic justification. And and biblically speaking, Paul is talking about a legal justification there. I think if you want to learn more about that, you could go check out the book by A. Blake White called The Law of Christ, a theological something, a theological proposition or something like that, um, proposal maybe. But it's a book by A. Blake White. He talks about, he talks about that. Um, the forensic justification in light of the new perspective on Paul, which if you don't know what that is, that's fine. But um, maybe you maybe you've heard of that. Um, but it's God who re- who regenerates. It's God who justifies, who can condemn, no one. It's God who regenerates, and and by the way, it's God who grants the faith. In Ephesians two eight and nine, it says it is the gift of God, and it's referring to the grace through faith. It's not just referring to the faith. It's not just referring to the grace. But the grace through faith is a gift of God, not the result of works. So I didn't hear anything in the question that implies that works, even even though the the gist of the question seemed to be challenging the idea of faith alone, I didn't hear anything in the premises that would make me think that we could even you know, that, that that he had a good argument worked up for why it wouldn't be just faith alone. Um, regeneration is not something we earn. Regeneration is a gift. And forensic justification, that courtroom-style declaration that we are no longer guilty of our sins, as Roman 8, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's that forensic justification. And in John 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. So there's regeneration. Um those are both gifts from God, as is the faith that acts as the conduit to receive that that um, that regeneration and and to believe in that we've been justified. So it's okay. all it's all of grace. So uh, would it be right if PXER uh, responded a little bit? Sure. Uh, in voice chat. All right. Just a little bit. Where are you in chat? Oh, there you are. Okay. Go PX. PX, you are unmuted. You may speak. Uh, we'll, we'll just keep a couple seconds here. Sure. If not, then we're moving on to... Let's do balsamic next. Okay. He is unmuted, uh, but he has himself muted. He's unserver muted in the room. Oh, sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. 
Okay, awesome. Um, so I wasn't trying to say that um, works was a part of salvation, but if regeneration is necessary for salvation yes. and regeneration happens um, inwardly um, by God, of course, wouldn't that mean that justification isn't forensic since um, a necessary component of salvation would be um, the renewal of the spirit, like being born again, like as well as through faith. So like faith alone in Jesus Christ, but then wow. God is also regenerating us and they're both distinct from one another, like having faith in Christ and then God choosing to regenerate us. Wouldn't those, if they, if they can be, like if there's a categorical distinction between the two and one of them involves um, changing us inwardly and they're both necessary for salvation, yes. would that mean that justification isn't forensic? Okay, okay, fair fair point. So um, a, 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 regeneration, a regenerated person can still sin. You agree with that, correct? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yes, right. So the, but, and, and yet the justification that we receive is total um when when abraham when when abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness it wasn't like um yeah you're you're righteous but only, you know, only kind of righteous um so abraham continued to sin after he was justified and you and i continue to sin if you're a follower of jesus christ you continue to sin as well now i hope that starting from this point on where the rest of my life i won't sin I mean, that would be wonderful. I've got no intention to sin right now as I say this to you. But um, if the past is any, if the future is anything like the past, I'm very well going to sin again. Um, but even if I don't, since the time that I've been declared justified by God, which was at a very young age for me, I think, I have sinned many, many countless times in horrible ways. <laughs> From God's perspective, I mean, you know, deserving hell every single time. Um, so what that means is the the reality in my day-to-day -day life does not match up with the declaration that God has given me. God has declared me righteous and worthy of no condemnation. That is a forensic, uh, they sometimes call it a legal fiction, which maybe you don't like that term. Um, it's it's I don't like the term fiction, but it's a fiction in the sense that it doesn't actually describe my day-to-day -day life. I'm not literally sinless. In fact, 1 John warns us against saying that we we have no sin. We actually make God out, out to be a liar if that's the case. We do still have sin in our day-to-day -day lives, and yet God has declared us to be righteous. So what that must mean then is that um, it must mean that sanctification, justification, and uh, so sanctification is progressive, and I believe that sanctification is in a sense synergistic, in a sense. I want to be careful with that term, but I do believe we participate in our our sanctification, even though I am a good Calvinist, and I do believe that that happens according to God's plan anyway. But um, but my regeneration does not mean that I have righteousness infused into me. Rather, I have it imputed to me. That's justification. But um, the righteous, the the new self, the new man that is um, that is created at the moment of my regeneration is something that is both a reality, but is yet also not yet complete in its victory over my old man. So this is why Paul has to tell us to put on the new man. He's talking to believers there. So putting on the new man is something we do every day, just like Jesus says, take up your cross every single day. We take up our cross. Well, if I've already died once, why do I have to keep taking up my cross? Well, because sin keeps rearing up its evil head. And so we need to get rid of the sin that remains and we need to take up our cross and we need to, you know, participate with God in our, in our sanctification, not our salvation. Because um, what scripture says, I, what is it? Uh, Philippians 2, where it says, as we work out our own salvation, it is God who is working in us both to will and to work. Well, that is true of the regenerated. So, so that's only true for, re for regenerated people. These are people who have already been saved. Um, and it's also true that while we are working out our own salvation, and sometimes that looks like a, a, you know, I don't know if you follow cryptocurrency at all recently, but uh, the Bitcoin chart has been, you know, up and down and up and down. And that's kind of like what we, what our sin lives look like, what our spiritual lives look like, you know, up and down. And there's sometimes you might look at yourself and go, man, am I even saved? But then the next day, you know, you're, you're on cloud nine with Jesus and it's you and him, um, you know, all the way. So our sanctification is this progressive roller coaster and, and, and would to God that mine was, was steadier and, and by his grace, may it be steadier. But, um, 
But if we're talking about people who are unregenerated, period, they don't they don't have their roller coaster at all. It's just sin. It's impossible for the mindset on the on the flesh to please God. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, it says all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Our righteousnesses, apart from Christ, are filthy rags. So, uh, so, so to summarize, then, regeneration does not infuse perfect righteousness in us, and yet we have no condemnation, which must mean, just like Abraham, our justification, our righteousness is imputed to us, meaning it's credited to us. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I appreciate your response. I appreciate the question. All right, excellent. I think I can do one split. more ellipsis. Yeah, no worries. Okay, so um, Balsamic, it's you. So uh, Balsamic, I think, is a, has a question about process theism. So we're heading tonight out with a banger. All right. Go for it. <laughs> Can, can you all hear me all right? Got you loud and clear. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, former uh, neo-Calvinist here. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, I was curious what your thoughts were about um, the interfaith dialogue from a process uh, relational theologian perspective, if you're, if you're uh, familiar with that. I'm not very familiar with it. I, I, I'm not familiar with any, I haven't interacted with any primary sources of process theology. When you say interfaith dialogue, are you talk? can you define what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I mean, um, you know, Christians talking with Jews or Muslims or, or atheists or something like that. Um, kind of a neo-Whiteheadian, um, you know, Trip Fuller, Jay Ord, if you're, if none of those ring a bell or something like that, like we can maybe hand it off to someone else for the final question. Man, I don't want to, you know, you know, leave us off on a dud. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of, well, so so what's your question then? Like, what about interfaith dialogue between process theology and other religions um well the uh, i find it interesting because they would um say that it would uh, that interfaith dialogue is something that brings us all kind of closer to our experience of god um rather than being a prime being primarily a source of evangelism um which oh. i found really interesting and compelling maybe yeah. that helps helps you out a little bit yeah i i, I suppose in process theology if I'm not mistaken, doesn't isn't process theology where God Himself is changing and the future is unknown to Him, and uh, He Himself is is becoming as well as as being God is is changing and and becoming uh, something. His His final form has not yet been reached. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, they would deny um, you know uh, some sort of total uh, immutability of God. To be yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean. Okay, again, consider this not much less than a shot in the dark. Um, I think uh, if you're a former new Calvinist, you said neo-Calvinist, so I don't, neo-Calvinist is a technical term dealing with a totally different movement, I think from the 20th century. <laughs> but uh, you, you could call me a, a, a piper uh, got it. And, and killer, sort of, yeah. A uh, young, young, restless, reform type. Uh, Mark, yeah, Mark there you go. Got it, got it. Okay, so, so I'm, I'm uh, very familiar. Yeah, I mean, I probably still am that to some degree. Hopefully, I've become a little less uh, restless and exited the cage stage, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I mean, if we're if we're taking our, you know, our theological definitions have to come from somewhere, and the idea that God is in process. Uh, that he's not only being, but he's also becoming. And, uh, you know, what you said about interfaith dialogue, you know, producing uh, a mutual closeness or increasing closeness to God. I, I mean, Mike, I would just have a lot of questions for someone who would posit that. Where are you getting your definitions of God from? That's certainly not biblical. It's not scriptural. It's not like scripture is like this, this, you know, tabula rasa we can just write. I mean, we're not, Deconstruction, deconstructivists. Uh, I mean that that way lies nihilism. You know, I mean, um, so that's that's uh, that's not going to be any good. Where we just impose our own meaning onto the text. So if process theology is not coming from Holy Scripture, where on earth are we getting these definitions from? Because God has defined truth and error, and yet we don't have the answer to everything. You know, every single question. I was just talking with one of my uh, ThinkPod listeners recently about. Uh, eschatology and it's like i'm probably only 90 percent of my eschatology 
there's, I've got some big questions. I'm like an optimistic, I'm millennialist. I think that that's true, but I don't know if I'll ever reach hundred um, percent. But I, I think that that's because, that's not because I, I think scripture stutters on that point. I just don't understand it yet. And I think that it's less clear than it is on other doctrines. But one thing that we can be very clear, I mean, the central doctrines of the faith are very clear. And perspicuity of scripture is a very important Christian doctrine. So if we're just going to throw all that out and say, yeah, God's in process and interfaith dialogue is is uh, part of the process of us becoming closer to God. Well, I mean, that's just a, it seems to me like that's just a baseless claim that is sort of based on the way we think things might be and ought to be. If that's the case, I can just negate that claim and have just as much basis for it. You know, no, interfaith dialogue doesn't have that effect. It actually makes us further away from God. And while we're at it, you know, God is not in process. God is, uh, you know, a, a solid state life form. I mean, I, I could just come up with anything. And um, and so I would just want to know what are these ideas based in and and uh, what sort of claim to transcendent absolute truth does the foundation of this view have? Because it, it's not scripture. I mean, that much at least seems clear to me. Right. Yeah, thanks for the answer. And I mean, I don't want to drag this question out longer than anyone else wants to, but at least the circles that I tend to run in seems to come from kind of the, the Wesleyan quadratic. Or there's something like that, right? Where it's the, the tradition and scripture and, and experience with prayer and Holy Spirit, that sort of thing, all hand in hand. Yes. Okay, sure. Fine. But test everything by scripture. And if if my prayer life and my, medit- my meditative life my devotional life, if if at any point these are leading me away to what Scripture has clearly said, it's the height of arrogance not to abandon those things and to come back to Christ. And that's that's not I'm not throwing shade at anybody who's you know in good faith trying to figure these things out, but Scripture is our infallible rule of faith and practice. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen says that all Scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that, in order that, I think it's, I don't know if it's in order that or so that, um, in the original Greek, but the man of God may be fully equipped, lacking nothing, fully equipped for every good work, may be complete. So, if other, if my other spiritual disciplines are leading me away, then I'm listening to the wrong spirit, either my own or a malevolent spirit. And, um, and, and, and you know, thank God he's given us the, the, the scripture as the infallible rule. Cool. Well, thanks for, uh, taking the question. Thanks for asking. Okay. No that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedecase. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. (laughs) 